Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax, audit, and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. The South Carolina Ports Authority, a major economic driver in South Carolina, supporting 187,000 jobs and nearly $53 billion in annual economic activity. And Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Not to be too flippant, but even a deadly hurricane does not stop the political debate in some of the partisan politics that go on right here in our communities. I'm Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched source of Carolina business policy and public affairs seen here in our region for 28 years. The overhang of Hurricane Florence will be felt for years to come, no doubt. But even in light of hurricane of, of this hurricane, election year politics and the shrill pitch of partisan divide has seemingly not stopped. Our politics and policy forever indivisible from our business dealings, community activity and personal relationships. Well, that's not all we're going to talk about. We'll start the dialogue in a moment. And later on, North Carolina's top cop, Attorney General Josh Stein. Gratefully acknowledging support by Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Leslie Boney from the Institute for Emerging Issues, NC State University. Andy Brack from the State House Report. And special guest, Josh Stein, North Carolina Attorney General. Hello, welcome again to our program. Leslie, good to have you back. Andy? Uh, Le Leslie, you know, here we are, and I, I wasn't, I'm not trying to be too flippant about a hurricane that was clearly one of the most deadly in the South's recent history, if not longer than that, but um, how does, are we just getting so good at rebuilding and assimilating those kind of disasters that it becomes a non-issue? We've almost forgotten about it. And I say almost, and I, and again, I want to be respectful for the loss of property and the loss, loss of lives, but are we at risk of losing momentum and losing some of the issues that need be around that? Yeah, I think a month out or so from a storm is when you move from what somebody called the honeymoon period to the disillusionment period. And that's where the people who are most directly affected by the storm feel like they've sort of been abandoned, like nobody's paying attention anymore. Is that the case, though? Do you get the sense the General Assembly's on board, that the, the uh, uh, philanthropic and the nonprofits are, are on board, or is is down east in North Carolina for you? Is it having to fend for itself? 
I think there's a mixture of both. There's obviously some legislative money that's come in. There are the federal agencies that are there. There are the philanthropic organizations. What's lost is the attention from the rest of the state. So the professionals are still down there, but a lot of the support that you need, uh, it used to be fast food restaurants were saying, would you like to contribute a dollar mm -hmm. to flood relief? And they're not saying that anymore. I just went through one this morning and they're not saying that anymore. So in terms of keeping it top of the mind for people who aren't directly affected, I think that's what's missing. Same, same question for South Carolina. I mean, mm -hmm. north of Georgetown, the Grand Strand, Horry County, devastating. Ab absolutely. You know, what I think that all these, what's happening with the storms now is that we're getting them every year. I mean, we in the last three years, we've had some pretty bad flooding, some pretty bad storms, and it's costing the state 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars a year to recover with state money, added on top of that with the federal money. I think what this illustrates is it's becoming routine to have big storms because of climate or whatever the reason. And what's ha not happening from the state level is that they're generally not budgeting for storms. They're not saying, you know, we're going to have an issue. Are there some proactive things that we can do? For example, there's a proposal to, to make sure that the dams are strengthened so that they don't fail, the earthen dams so that they don't fail. We need to get on top of that beforehand so that we don't have crises when the flood or when the storm hits. Do you, do you think, Andy, this is a one-off, you think that Columbia and the Midlands got a little uh, got a little twitchy because of the 12 plus 20 inches that they got uh, a year or two ago. Was it two years ago now? Right. Two years ago. Yeah. Do you think that that was a problem? As you described, I thought of several dams that failed yeah. in Columbia and the Midlands. Was that a sense of what was going on in the capital city? There? You know, and I don't, I don't live in Columbia, but I, I, the sense I got from reading the paper and talking to people with this most recent storm is that, oh no, it's coming to us. Are the dams going to break again? And we should have started taking care of that after the last one to make sure everything was safe. Leslie, does this restart the dialogue that, and I, I'm not going to describe this well, but you'll know it as soon as it comes out of my mouth. The, the, this dialogue that goes on between those that want to own property, vacation homes and beach homes, but, but don't have appropriate coverage when it comes to storms and floods. And those that pay taxes and say, we're absolutely not gonna bail you out this time. And again, that's my dialogue. Does this restart that dialogue? I think it has to, and, and that seems to be the big challenge. So North Carolina has done a really good job of accumulating a rainy day fund and beginning to deploy that. We have not done a good job of thinking about long-term resilience and how we might uh, rebuild those dams, how we might rebuild earthen structures that are affected by storms like this. So we're very good at doing the reactive thinking in terms of the proactive thinking. That's where we seem to be hesitant. And there's a disagreement between those mm -hmm. who enjoy vacation homes but don't necessarily like the idea of pumping money into beach renourishment or uh, insurance funds and those that live there and think that those are absolutely indispensable and they should be able to build wherever they want. Well, will we have a solution or an answer to that question, Andy? You live in yeah, Charleston. I think that it's, it's in a lot of ways it's politically moot because when a storm hits, um, people want their places fixed up, they want them rebuilt, and the politicians who are in office at that point are going to do whatever they can to get mm -hmm. reelected again. So I think that there may have been a commitment from a previous legislature, but the current legislature say, no, we need to rebuild those homes. So I think that there is a lot of political pressure that could come to fore in any situation in the future that it's hard to, I mean, the best thing is to be, do insurance funds and to build up reserves so that you can spend them in, in, in 
flooding days, mm -hmm. not rainy days. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, you, you got to look at the political part of it too. Uh, there was, a, and we'll ask our guests this question too, there was a poll on from Elon University, Leslie, that, that highlighted that two-thirds of North Carolinians, at least, do, do really don't know what they're going to be voting for this fall. Does that, number one, does that surprise you? Number two, does that concern you? Uh, doesn't surprise me. I think people don't really pay attention until just before an election, an off-year election. So doesn't particularly surprise me. There's not a whole lot of deep knowledge about what the amendments are. I do think there's going to be a huge amount of money that's poured into the last two weeks designed by both sides to try to educate people about the amendments. So uh, I think... Meaning the six constitutional amendments that are on... Uh, that are proposed to be on the, 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 the North Carolina ballot. Thank you. Right. Thank yes. You. Better said. Uh, Andy, same question. The question is, do, do you think most voters have any idea of what's at stake this fall? I've been talking to voters all over the country. Um, and what I think is that they are going to have their opinions heard, but they probably, there's nothing that they can vote for to have that opinion heard, whether that's on the president's performance and other things. Um, I think that the midterm elections are really going to uh, chart the future course of this country. I think people realize how important that they are. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be, I think that people are going to care, but then there's other polls out there that show that half the people are so frustrated by the process because politicians can't get along that they're just going to say the heck with it. Too. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's one of those things we're going to have to show up on Election Day and see what happens. Wasn't that the whole point with the Trump election, that the status quo, folks were tired of the status quo? Do you think that could show back up and surprise a lot of people? Well, I mean, I think that if you look at every election and off election for the last six or seven years, you've seen more and more people frustrated with things. I mean, the reason the Tea Party got started is because they were frustrated that Obama got elected. So, so, so a final question. How would you handicap the governor's race in South Carolina? Would you expect that McMaster is going to keep the job? I would be surprised if Governor McMaster loses. In, in politics, when you're looking at somebody who holds a position and you're trying to determine whether to keep them on the job, I think you look at, have they done enough wrong that they shouldn't have the job again. And I think the way the governor's responded on the flood and the hurricane, uh, I think the way that he's done a number of other things throughout the state, that he's listened to people and that he's probably not going to reach that level of throw this bum out for another guy. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to describe getting reelected is, <laughs> is in the negative that way. But thank you, gentlemen. We're going to bring our guest on just a moment next week. Uh, on our program, Dr. Nathan Hatch, na main, if, if you are a, a deacon, you're, you're going to know that name, and even if you're not, Wake Forest University President Dr. Nathan Hatch will be on our program again. And then also coming up, um, Chairwoman and Chief Executive Officer of Duke Energy, Lynn Good, comes back on this program as well. Like many attorneys general before him, our guest has had other public service duties on his way to this posting. A state senator representing North Carolina's Wake County from 2009 to 2016. Also during that time, served as Deputy Attorney General for Consumer Protection. Joining us now is the sitting North Carolina Attorney General, the Honorable Josh Stein. Your Honor, welcome to the program. Chris, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Stein, let me ask you a, a question. How do you balance this whole idea of being the, I called it the top cop at the beginning of the program, but, but you are charged with enforcing the laws of North Carolina as it's written on the books constitutionally, but also those laws that are passed by the General Assembly. Right. Um, it's a different dialogue now because 
partisan politics is such a fever pitch. So how do you do your job appropriately and effectively and where you can sleep at night, but also bring that, that, that uh, commitment and the principles that you have to the job? Well, it's very easy for me, actually. I just go to my pledge, my oath of office. It's to uphold the United States Constitution and the state constitution and the laws of the state. Uh, and I do that unless it conflicts with the U.S. Constitution. My role is very different as Attorney General than it was when I was in the state Senate. When I was in the state Senate, if we were debating a bill that I thought was a terrible idea, uh, I would stand up and say so, and then I would vote no. When I'm the Attorney General and my job is to defend the state, it means I have to defend laws, even that I personally disagree with, um, unless it violates the Constitution. And so I, I just, I follow my oath. Does, you know, one, one of the big tools you have, your predecessor before you, even the governor now has, is the idea to bring suit, to compel a decision or compel a direction. Um, how do you judiciously, no pun intended, but how do you thoughtfully use that tool without overusing it to make sure that you can get things done, but know when to back off and not bring suit? Well, if, if what we're talking about is when there are businesses out there uh, doing wrong and we want to make sure that our people are protected, uh, again, the, the standard is very basic. I'm, I'm there to fight for the people of North Carolina. Uh, if I can reach a resolution with a business that has run afoul of the law, uh, in a reasonable way that will address whatever wrong occurred and make sure that it doesn't happen again in the future, litigation's not necessary. Uh, but sometimes when you can't reach court or somebody has engaged in action that is uh, so wrong, then I go to court and I, and I don't hesitate to do that. Mm -hmm. Leslie, question? I'd like to ask you about opioids because that's something that you've paid a fair amount of attention to in your first uh, a few months as Attorney General. And one of the things that my institute, the Institute for Emerging Issues has found is that roughly 31% of the people that are not participating in the workforce right now are doing so because they report they're addicted yeah. to substances in some way. And I'm wondering why you've chosen to make that a particular area of focus out of the many things you could focus on. Thank you, Leslie. And it is my top policy priority. It is the deadliest drug epidemic we've ever experienced in the United States. In North Carolina, we're losing about four people a day to an opioid overdose. 2016, we lost more lives than we ever had. In 2017, there was a 25% increase over 2016. 2,000 people died. And so lives are being ruined. Families are being torn apart and suffering incredible emotional devastation. And it's affecting our communities. It's, it's filling up our jails. Our emergency departments, the EMS, have to be trained in how to administer naloxone, which is a life-saving drug that brings people back to life from, from an overdose. Our social services, our foster care rates are, are through the roof. Uh, and so as I traveled the state, it became clear to me that this is the gravest public health and public safety crisis we're facing. And so I made it a commitment to try to develop a comprehensive strategy to tackle it. And there's also a huge economic cost. I met, uh, I was in Rutherford County and heard from a, an employer there who said when, as a manufacturer, whenever they post a job, five applicants, two fail the drug test, two have criminal records because of a drug passed. So only 20% out of the, of the applicants are even eligible for interview. Andy? You know, I wanna um, kinda go up to 30,000 feet and talk about partisanship a little bit. 
I sat one time with Senator, late Senator Terry Sanford, and I was basically asking him, how did you get so much stuff done? Mm -hmm. And it's by working together and collaborating. What I see from South Carolina is that North Carolina has always, South Carolina has always been the redheaded stepchild, but y'all seem to be wanting to become more like us now. <laughs> and in the way that some of the policies have changed and how the education system is, is, is not as, as good as it, it used to be. No. So, you know, I guess what I'm thinking is as a, as a leader in the state, not the attorney general, what can be done to foster more collaboration and get rid of the partisanship that everybody seems to hate? I, you have struck upon what is a core uh, concern, not only in North Carolina, not only South Carolina, but it, we're seeing it all across the country. We're seeing it today in Washington, D.C. with the vote for uh, Judge Kavanaugh. We are a divided country and we can't ignore that, but we have to repair it. And the way I look at it is, uh, when we have a crumbling foundation, you have to go back and re-cement re the blocks. You gotta get to the base and, and build uh, confidence and try to find common values, common cause. So as Attorney General, one uh, aspect of making the opioid epidemic my priority, this is a nonpartisan crisis. Uh, <laughs> drug addiction, the brain chemistry, they don't ask you, are you a Democrat or a Republican? They don't ask if you're rural or urban, black or white, old or young. The chemistry in your brain just changes and your life is transformed. And so I have had remarkable partnership with the Republican General Assembly and we've enacted strong laws to reduce overprescribing, which will reduce the number of people who become addicted, to give law enforcement more tools to go after the drug traffickers bringing poison into our state, and to keep the drug rings from diverting lawful drugs to the, to the street. So. I try to find issues where we can work together. Uh, another example, um, Pam Bondi is the Attorney General, Republican Attorney General of Florida. Uh, I was really concerned after all these workplace sexual harassment um, cases that have come up in the last year about these confidential agreements that employers force their employees to sign so that everyone else in the work workforce doesn't know that their boss has been alleged of sexual harassment. And she agreed that that was a problem. So we wrote a letter to Congress urging them to pass a law to get rid of these agreements that silence uh, these agreements. We got 55 attorneys general, every attorney general from every state, district, and territory that as a member of the National Association of Attorneys General, first time in 10 years that had happened. And so I agree we have a sickness and I think we will cure it instance by instance by instance of finding issues we can work together. So it's trust. It has to be built over time. But, but if we use that metaphor, Your Honor, about going to the building blocks and changing the underlying, the underpinnings of that, wouldn't that include campaign finance reform? Wouldn't that include things like, well, let's look, let's look at, 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 at and I promise I'm not pinning you down on this, but it, you know, people will say, well, it's career politicians. It's folks, like men and lady, that, that, that get in a position and won't, and won't cede power and let someone else come in. How, so how do we respectfully have that dialogue and maybe right, maybe wrong, but at least talk about it without being inflamed? Chris, I think, I think you are hitting at a very important uh, part of the solution. Right now, the basic rules of our democracy aren't working well. Uh, whether it is campaign finance, where there's just millions and millions of dollars. Um, there's a, a Republican super PAC in Washington, D.C. that 
purchased $4 million of TV time against me and nobody really knows who they were. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of unlimited amount of money divorces the candidates from the people they're representing. And that's a, that's a problem and something we need to look at and figure out. Uh, the other, I think, is, is gerrymandering where representatives end up drawing the lines to choose their voters instead of having the voters choose their representatives, which is obviously the way our democracy mm -hmm. is supposed to work. Uh, and if you look at North Carolina, we are a 50-50 state. And I, I speak as uh, Exhibit A. I won with 50.24% of the vote, <laughs> less than half of 1%. Yet our congressional delegation is 78% Republican, 22% Democratic. Our state Senate is 70% Republican, 30% Democratic. Mm -hmm. And our state House is 63% Republican, 37% Democratic, in what is a 50-50 state. We're one of the you know, most uh, swing states in the country. So when you have gerrymandering that divorces the representatives from the voters, they start to lose their sense of accountability. We have to solve that problem. And, and I, I, just wait one second. I'm going to give you a chance, Leslie, because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of stepping in line here. Um, yes, thank you for articulating that. And how do you do it, uh, Mr. Attorney General, in a way that includes, it was gerrymandered when the Democrats were running the state in North Carolina as well. So how do you do it in a respectful way to say, let's, let's reset, let's hit the reset button and let's start all over again? Yeah, and of course it was done when Democrats were in control, but two things. One is it wasn't done to the same degree, uh, and two, technology has completely changed the game where the amount of information they know about individual voters and individual houses, they can change. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I heard uh, an example of what happened in Durham County. They were drawing a line through an apartment complex where the Board of Elections people had to not only go onto the apartment complex to see which buildings were in which district, they had to enter an apartment to see which room was the bedroom in the apartment to know what, what district to put them in. Um, so it is, it is orders of magnitude worse than it has ever been. Um, but let's set the past aside. Yeah. The best hope is to have an independent commission that will then draw these districts. And does that mean politics won't play a role? Of course it yeah. won't mean it. Politics is always in everything. But will it be better than having the foxes who are currently guarding the chicken house? Yeah. I, I think without doubt. Yeah, okay, thank you. Leslie, go ahead. No, I think there is a lesson from the hurricane that we can uh, learn from both North and South Carolina. In a hurricane, we have a common enemy. Florence is coming, Florence is here, Florence just kicked our butt. We have a common goal, everybody wants to rebuild, and we have these people that learn to talk to each other. And suddenly we have conversations with Democrats and Republicans talk, black and white talk, Low, low, low socioeconomic status people talk with high socioeconomic status people, and there is a forum where we can actually try to get things done and put put those partisan divides aside. And I think people are about ready for that. I well, think and in fact, there was a picture of a press conference of President Trump and, and Governor Cooper on the same dais that was. And you have the, a question. And the legislature yeah. had a special session last week, and they worked together with the governor's yeah. office. And people are desperate for that kind of of problem solving. Not partisanship, problem solving. Yeah. Question here. I was going to ask a little bit more about gerrymandering because I would prognosticate that it's going to happen again. You're Attorney General, you're in office to protect the rights of everybody. Would you see a situation where you might 
bring lawsuit because districts aren't fair? I think that it's entirely speculative. We don't know what the 2020 census will show. We don't know what the legislature will do. Uh, we would certainly hope they would exercise some self-restraint. I mean, the legislature did bring forward these constitutional amendments, which you mentioned earlier, and two of them having to do with the separation of powers, where they actually weaken the separation of powers in our Constitution by taking power over the judiciary and away from the executive and putting it in the hands of the legislature. Um, two, those two amendments, as initially drawn, were incredibly misleadingly described on the ballot. So what people were going to be voting on did not actually reflect what the amendments did. And the governor sued me, or sued the State Board of uh, Elections, and we concluded that the governor was right, and so we actually sued the legislature too. So that's an example where people's fundamental constitutional rights to know what it is they're voting on before they change the foundational legal document, our state constitution, is paramount. My duty is to the people more than it is to a specific law. Does I hope it doesn't happen though. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Does we have about a minute left. Does electorate awareness undercut and would that would that fix a lot of what you're talking about? Well, we definitely do need to make folks aware, but when you have a special session where you spring these six constitutional amendments on the voters without any popular process leading up to it so that there's no uh, broad uh, understanding about what the amendments are doing, I'm not surprised by the results of the Elon polls that people just don't know what they are because mm -hmm. no one had any opportunity to have input in them. Uh, I almost said governor. Uh, Your Honor, good to have you on the program. Glad you're here. Chris, thank uh, you. And, and, and best of luck going forward. Uh, Andy, nice to see you. Thank you. Good, Leslie, thank you for making the trip to all of you because I know it's not a small commitment to join us on this program. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thank you for watching our program. If you have any questions or comments, uh, please go to carolinabusinessreview.org. It's a long name, but it'll be worth it. Watch shows and make comments. Uh, until next week, I'm Chris Wooding. Good night. Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by the Duke Endowment, Barings, Grant Thornton, the South Carolina Ports Authority, Sonoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina Magazine. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.com.